0: in the teachings, in the Buddha's teachings, the texts that we have inherited down through the generations. There are many stories of the Buddha speaking to people about how suffering happens, how we get caught, how how we struggle, how that happens. I'm going to start with one of those, one of those teachings. And here he starts with how an ordinary person meets the world. How does an ordinary person navigate life? He says, an ordinary person does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, they attend to those things unfit for attention and do not attend to those things fit for attention. This is how they attend unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else they are inwardly perplexed about the present. (laughs) Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where did this being come from? Where will it go? And so he points to the way that we orient to experience as an ordinary person without training, without hearing the teachings. We orient to the world through the perspective of self. Any of these sound familiar? And with that perspective, he says, we get caught in views of self. These views of self include self exists in me, or I, I am a self. Also, includes no self exists in me. So, both attachment or belief in the view of self and the belief in no self. There is no self. The Buddha said that is wrong view. That is a view of self to believe there is no self. He said, another view, it is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions but this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, and will endure as long as eternity. So he calls these views of self, he points to the sense of self being a view, an idea, a belief. And he says, this is called the thicket of views, The wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. Fettered by the fetter of views, the ordinary person is not freed from suffering. And so pointing to this looking at experience through this perspective of self as being a key reason why suffering happens. In another teaching, again pointing to how easy it is for us to get caught by this view, there's a questioner talking to the Buddha. And the Buddha is explaining about experience to this questioner. The questioner's name is Paguna. Paguna. And at a certain point in this conversation, the Buddha is talking about the experience of feeling, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the questioner says, Venerable sir, who feels? And the Buddha responds, Not a valid question. I do not say one feels. If I said one feels, in that case, this would be a valid question but I do not speak thus. If one should ask me, venerable sir, with what as condition does feeling come to be? This would be a valid question. To this, the valid answer is, with contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving comes to be. And this questioner doesn't quite get it because his next question is, venerable sir who craves and so again pointing to how easy it is for us to get caught in this belief there is one who feels one who knows one who craves one who gets angry one who gets confused and instead the buddha points to this being this process is this being is a process With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. With feeling as condition, craving comes to be. And so this, to me, also points to the way we as... um, When we uh, we have not understood this teaching of not-self... And I like this framing of the, the, the term anatta, the term anatta, often translated as no-self or, or not-self. I like the way um, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu translates it as not-self because it's, it's the, the, the Buddha clearly said, there is no-self is wrong view. There is no-self is simply another view of self. And so not-self, to me, evokes basically that what we think of as self is not what we think of it as. It's, it's not what we think of it as. So it's not self. And what we often take to be self is this conditioned process. We attribute a enduring or a lasting or kind of a sense of stability of something that is seeing, feeling, hearing, knowing, craving, being mindful, we attribute something to this process. And so misunderstanding this conditioned process as a stable, enduring reality. And so... This is, this is one way that we can begin to kind of maybe go into this teaching of not-self to understand what is meant by it. That it's not that the Buddha is saying there's nothing there. He, he clearly points to this process nature of experience. There's this process unfolding and conditions, lawful conditions in the shaping of that process. But there's nothing stable or enduring there. Nothing that we can pin down and say, this, this is me. This is who I am. When we try to do that, when we try to look actually, and we'll talk about this, uh, we'll explore this a little bit more a little later on in the talk, looking at what we actually think of as self. What is the experience we call me? What is the experience we say, I am? What is that? And when we start to look at it, we see it's really hard to actually point to it. And it's hard to point to it because there's nothing to point to. The process nature of experience doesn't lend itself to landing on something and saying, oh, that, that's what the self is. I'd like to um, use an analogy to help us kind of enter into understanding this process nature or this conditioned nature or um, the flux of experience that we sometimes mistake or misunderstand as a self. So if we think about a rainbow, I had the great fortune in er, in January and early February to be on self-retreat. A friend let me use their cabin on the, coast of Oregon. And uh, the weather there is pretty wild in January. Um, and there were some days that the waves were enormous. And I would take walks along the cliff there. Well, it was right on the, on the ocean. The, the place I was staying was right on the ocean. And I would every day take walks on the cliff. And uh, one day the the waves were so high, they were I mean, the cliffs i were was on, the cliff I was on was about fifty to seventy feet above sea level. But one day the waves were so enormous, they were they were crashing against the cliffs and shooting up into the air. And it happened to be a sunny day, and so I was walking it along, and at one place along that cliff where I was walking. I was looking out at the the burst of the crash of the waves and a rainbow appeared right in front of me. And then it vanished, of course. And then another wave came and it appeared again. And then there was a mist floating by and the rainbow kind of appeared and disappeared as that mist floated by. It looked very stable when it was there and in fact it looked like it was appearing and and disappearing like it was being revealed almost as if it was hanging in in the air just waiting to be revealed like the curtain being drawn back and yet there isn't a rainbow in the air there the rainbow you know if i if i walked 10 feet that way the rainbow i couldn't see the rainbow because the orientation of the sun and the water wasn't right. And so that's a condition for the rainbow to appear. Now, is the rainbow there if I'm not looking at it? I don't know. Same question of, is there sound if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's listening? <laughs> it's just, so in terms of the experience, of my experience, the rainbow did not exist when I walked 10 feet down the, the cliff. 10 yards or so down the cliff. When the waves fell, there was no rainbow. If the sun had gone behind a cloud, there would be no rainbow. So these conditions came together to produce this experience of rainbow, a conditioned process. And yet, it's not that the rainbow doesn't exist. We can't say there's no rainbow I mean, we can take a picture of a rainbow. But we can't say it's a thing either. It's dependent on conditions. So the sense of self is very like that, it comes into being in dependence on conditions. The sense of self comes into being in dependence on conditions. The Buddha taught quite a bit about this understanding around anatta, not self. In the very second discourse the Buddha is said to have given is a teaching to the five friends. the I think uh, um, Susie talked about the five friends that he practiced with before he found his own way. And then after he understood his, uh, his freedom and realized he could articulate it to people who had some depth of understanding, some depth of practice, he thought of his five friends and he went to find them and to give them some of his understanding. The first one, the first teaching, was the teaching on the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. The second one was said to be a teaching on not-self. And in this text, he he launches right in around around, um, uh, framing an understanding of not-self around a way of Understanding human experience through a teaching called the Five Aggregates. We haven't explicitly done a Five ag- Aggregate talk in this half of the the retreat, so I'll just briefly overview it here. We've talked about various parts of the of the of this um, teaching. The Five Aggregates is kind of a way of understanding human experience, much as the way the six sense bases are a way of understanding human experience. That John talked about the other night that this is a way kind of to divide up our human experience. We can understand our human experience as being coming in through these six sense spaces. Another way of dividing up human experience is to to think about it in terms of these five processes. The five processes are a process of physical form, a process of, of physicality. And then four mental processes at work: the process of feeling, which Amana talked so beautifully about; the process of perception, which I spoke about; the process of mental formations, which is basically—it's—it's um, it's like the. All of the stuff that goes on in our minds, thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states, all of those are, are mental formations. They are, um, um, sometimes this, this, um, this aggregate is called intentional or volitional formations. And so it is those um, mental activities that have intention associated with them and somebody somebody did talk about intention and susie brought it in last night in talking about karma and so we have touched on on these the f- the fourth mental process is the process of knowing of the simple recognition of experience and so we have physical experience and mental experience physical and mental experience interplaying interweaving so form, feeling, perceptions, intentional or volitional formations in consciousness. And many of the teachings the Buddha offered around not-self use this framework to help us basically understand that we've misperceived or misunderstood a sense of self, misattributed it, cre- created a view where is, it's, there's nothing really to hang that view on. And so in this... Teaching The Buddha points to each of these five aggregates from different perspectives. And the first perspective he points to is the perspective essentially of control. He says, can you control form? Do you have mastery over form? Essentially, you know, can you say, may my body be thus? May my body not be thus. This is the language of the, of, the, of the sutta. It goes through all of the, f- the five aggregates in this way. Form is not self. If form were self, the body would not lend itself to affliction and it would be possible to determine of the body, let my body be thus, let my body not be thus. But because form is not self-self, body leads to affliction it is not possible to say let my body be thus let my body not be thus and this points to one way that we tend to think of a sense of self that a sense of self is something that has mastery or control over some parts of our experience and here the Buddha is pointing out that the experience of body in effect can't be what we would call self because we cannot control it. We cannot ultimately control it. We cannot fully control it. I'm going to read another one of these because it it kind of lends a different flavor to the 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 teaching. Consciousness is not self. If consciousness were self, consciousness would not lend itself to affliction and it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is not self, consciousness leads to affliction. And it is not possible to say, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. The Buddha is actually pointing to what we know. We know we can't say, let my consciousness be thus. would it be so? That would be so great. Sit down. May mindfulness arise and be (laughs) steadily arising. We don't have that kind of control. And he points to this very evident thing. You know, pointing essentially here. One way to look at this is thinking about the wandering mind. You know, we we know the mind wanders. We sit down. We try to pay attention to our breath. We try to stabilize our attention in the present moment. And what happens? The mind wanders. You know, who did that? You didn't decide. I'm going to make my mind wander now mostly, and sometimes we we try to do that. I'm going to let go of being mindful right now. But much of the time when the mind wanders, it simply wanders, conditions arise, such that the mind loses mindfulness. And then mindfulness returns. You know, who did that? You didn't do that just happened, that effortless mindfulness returning that we talked about early in the m- month of March. It's just arising. No one in control of it arising. Just a process unfolding. And the Buddha points to this as evidence for not-self. These experiences we have all the time. You know, it's interesting, we think, we think there's a lot of evidence for self. But when we try to start looking at what the evidence for self is, it ends up being pretty vague and not easy to pin down. And we, we, we don't think that there's much evidence for not-self, but it's staring us in the face all the time. And this lack of control is one of those pieces of evidence more evidence for not-self, the Buddha points to. And this, to some extent, points to a kind of a, a definition of self that was common in his day. In, in his day, the, the, the kind of aim for a spiritual practice in some of the spiritual circles was to merge with Atman, merge with the, basically the large self, Atman, Atta, coming from the same root. And that Atman was thought to be permanent and blissful, unchangeable. And so the Buddha points to what we experience, our direct experience, and says, look in your experience. Any part of your experience permanent? Anything you experience? Anything you can say that is lasting. And if you look at it, form, feeling, mental formations, perception, consciousness, all changing, none of it, stable. And this becomes more and more clear the more continuous that mindfulness gets. This is one of those understandings that begins to kind of point itself out to us. Yeah, things are not, not permanent. Experience. There's nothing that can be found in experience that is permanent. And because it's impermanent, the Buddha points to, because it's impermanent, there is the trying to find something on which to land for there to be some place of reliable happiness, nothing in our experience qualifies as a place where we could say, yep, that's where I can find reliable, unchangeable happiness. Because everything is, is impermanent. And so by a corollary, it's also unreliable. So impermanent, unreliable experience And this the Buddha points to as not worthy. He says, is this worthy of being called self? And so this teaching also points a little bit to what do we call self? How do we define a sense of self? And does it make sense to call it a self? Does it make sense in the way that we are interpreting it as self? And so this is is kind of looking at what is it? How do we feel into what a sense of self is? And how does our practice, how does the practice of mindfulness joined with wise intention, wise view, how does this practice help us to not just take this in as a concept, and sometimes even the concept is hard enough to take in, but how does it begin to let us actually understand this, non-conceptually, through direct experience. How can this practice help us to understand the teaching of not-self? One of the most direct doorways to this is through this exploration of what feels like a sense of self. What am I calling self? Study what you're calling self. A famous quote by a Zen Zen master, Dogen. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And so this points to this exploration of what are we calling a sense of self? When a sense of self arises, what, what is that actually? What is that experience? And through that exploration, beginning to understand that what we are calling a sense of self is simply that, a process that there isn't anything stable in There isn't anything that we can call what we think of as a sense of self. So getting familiar with what we think of as self experientially. Kind of in, in brief as we do that. As we explore a sense of self. There might be times and, and some of you have described noticing this, that you're, you're noticing some sense of self and, and, and it falls apart. And you recognize, wow, that was not who I am. That was not, it was just, it was just an arising. It wasn't who I am. And so sometimes as, as we explore in our experience the senses of self, we see one disintegrating. And we recognize, wow, nope. If that were me, it would still be here. And this is one of the, the senses of self, is a kind of the sense of something that's stable and enduring. And so looking at experience, some, anything we think is stable and enduring, we look at it long enough, we see it changes. There's sometimes too as we're exploring our experience that we see a sense of self arising and again we see wow that came into being there was a witnessing of seeing this experience coming into being again through causes and conditions and we see wow that was a that was a conditioned process that arose the Buddha was famous for his lists, as you know, and uh, he had a teaching of the 20 ways that we have identity view. And this was basically, um, for each of the five aggregates, there's four ways of attributing a sense of self. So that's 20, five times four. And I'm not going to try to go through these exhaustively, but I want to give you a flavor of these different kinds of ways the Buddha pointed to that we, we misattribute or create a view. Because he calls this identity view, Sakaya ditti in the in the Pali. Identity view, personality view. And it's seen as a view. The sense of self is understood to be basically a belief. that is misunderstood as a thing. So this connects to that teaching that that I offered around perception and papancha. That with a concept, with with perceiving something or recognizing something, a concept comes into play and then we believe that concept to have some kind of inherent existence. We do this with a sense of self. This is a process that happens in our minds. And it seems to be pretty human. So it's a pretty deep process. Pretty useful process, potentially. And so the Buddha points to this view as having different flavors. And so one of the flavors is I am something. I am body. I am the body. I am my emotions. I am angry, I am miserable, I am happy. Or we may have an identity around roles, concepts essentially. I'm a mother, I'm a, I'm a parent, I'm, a, I'm a, a sibling, I'm a student. You know, basically an identification around a concept. Or we may have an identification around being the one that things happen to. I'm the one who feels. I'm the one who knows. And so this is the first kind of view. And we can hear it almost in our minds at times. Yeah, I am so angry. Identity view in that form. Attributing, kind of equating uh, our with the the feeling. Second form of identity view is possessiveness. Something is mine. Things belong to me. I have a body. I have feelings. I have emotions. And so as opposed to being those, it's, it's like something bigger that has them. There's another way. And again, we use this language. I have emotions. I have anger. The third kind of identity view is, this, the Buddha says, I am inside of something. So... This one is less familiar to me. The the main way I I feel this one is kind of at times feeling like I'm inside the body. That, that, you know, somehow that, you know, that there's a me sitting, you know, somewhere behind my eyes or something. Potentially at times in certain states of meditation, there's been a sense of, you know, an expansive state and feeling like I'm in the state. i being inside of awareness. Something like that. And the fourth way of holding creating this view of self is something is inside of me. Emotions are in me. This again in language we might say you know, we, might, we might feel like we're holding in emotions and so that you know, the emotions are inside holding it in consciousness is in me so those are ways the buddha pointed to and and i think we can reflect on the language or you know when our when our thoughts start doing their process they often reveal how we are identifying i am so angry These feelings these feelings I have to hold them in so pointing to where is it how is it that we're attributing a sense of self in each of those each of those ways in more kind of um, I have not experienced all 20 (laughs) of those ways and yet i find these useful reflections at times to 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 kind of again use those thoughts as pointers to how i might be holding a sense of self and the language in the mind can often point to when we do have a sense of self the words me i mine those are those are um good clues that there's a sense of self going on and the buddha did use you know those words um familiarly or colloquially, that, you know, it's like we don't have to say, like like if I'm going to walk across the room, I can say, oh, I'm going to go out the door. I don't have to say this process of mind and body is going to stand and intend to walk across the door. We, c- we can say, I'm going to walk out the door. But often when our thoughts come up, you know, it's a pointer too. two. A- and when we see our thoughts, I don't know, some like, really large number of them are self-referential. You know, at least 99% <laughs> seem to have something to do with me. Or they have something to do with me indirectly because they have something to do with other. This, this in my experience, is another way that we have a sense of self it's an it's a kind of an indirect way, in a way, but if we are orienting that person there, doing that thing, mm-hmm. them, they, there, there is a sense of self happening in being separated from that the they, them there is creating. An, an other something external, and there will be a sense of self. May not be as obvious. I mean, what we may be be seeing or or recognizing in those thoughts is the the words they, them. You know, they shouldn't do that. They're thinking this thing about me, or you know, all of those different thoughts about other. So that's another way that we have a sense of self. So we can notice those kinds of thoughts as well. There's a sense, I think, often with the sense of self, that there's a kind of a solidity somehow, a sense of stability, something continuous that has traveled through life. This is reinforced by memories, by conversations with family about what we did when we were kids. And so there's this kind of um, imputing of a, st- of a stability of a being that has traveled through time. That's another way that we feel the sense of self. This is just more, in my experience, ways that I've, ex- I've seen it. And then a big way that... I I find in my own experience around selfing is around you know, being the one who chooses. You know, I'm the one who decides things. Now that's a that's a that's a main kind of congealing of self. This particular um exploration, you know, as we start to as we start to look at the sense of self here, when we when mindfulness gets stronger, when mindfulness gets more continuous, we start to see how decisions come to be. We can watch this process. We see, you know, you're sitting in the hall. I might have used this example earlier. You're sitting in the hall and feel a slight pressure in the bladder. That pressure gets stronger, stronger, stronger. Unpleasantness arises. There's the uh, the recognition of needing to relieve the bladder. With that, there's an intention to do that, followed by a whole host of intentions to stand, get up, walk out the door, go to the, the restroom. We can see this unfolding and recognize it's almost like it's just a machine at work. You know... It feels a little spooky sometimes. Like who made that decision? It was just a process unfolding, and so the the witnessing of how choice happens, we can begin to really that that can begin to undermine this identification around being the one who chooses, who decides. At some point. I really began to see this particularly around um, around consciousness. I could see, I'm not the one who decides what comes into consciousness. You know, I thought I was. I thought I, I chose what to pay attention to. But then I began to see, no, you know, some, some process does that. So I could see, wow, I'm not the one doing that. But it sure feels like it's happening to me. Another form of selfing. I'm the one things happen to. So again, just watching this, seeing what is this sense of self arising. Watching the processes around it. As we watch these processes at work, we can see a lot of really interesting things. There's one of the things that I found so fascinating was that there's not a single thing that I call self. There's a lot of selves. A lot of different senses of selves. Many of these senses of selves have nothing to do with each other. Thinking a particular thought about a dear friend. The friend The friend arises. The, the 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 feelings associated with that friendship arise. It feels like me. And a few minutes later, the thought of, you know, a parent. My parent arises. And a whole different set of feelings and experiences comes to be there. And nothing to do with this other one. At some point, I thought, wow, a sense of self is just simply a familiar set of contractions and thoughts and moods. That's what a sense of self feels like. It's just familiar stuff happening that has happened before and I'm calling it a sense of self. A lot of these identities, another word for selves, identities, a lot of these identities are conditioned. They They are all conditioned, in fact. Not a lot of them, they are all conditioned. They're conditioned by experience. And so my friend self, for instance, that's conditioned by that particular individual experience. They're also conditioned by culture. And so my experience of being a, a cisgendered female, a female that feels like a female in her own as the, the the female body and feels like a female, that experience is conditioned. And so there's you know, any, any identity around that female experience is conditioned a lot by culture. And I butted up against a lot of that. What I was told by culture that females could and couldn't do, were and weren't good at. A lot of suffering there. A lot of fighting. No, that's not me. And so these, these identities come into being not only in dependence on our own personal experience, but also in dependence on culture. And a lot of these strategies, a lot of these senses of selves are strategies for navigating our lives. Strategies for navigating in particular the challenges of an impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable world. Strategies for safety. When you reflect on kind of familiar patterns and habits, ones that come up a lot, and I've heard this a lot in, in, in the meetings, you know, when something comes up, it's like you know, something is coming up frequently on retreat. I often say, is this something you, you have in your life? Yeah. Often it is. Because these patterns repeat themselves. They are conditioned. And they're strategies for navigating the world. When we butt up against challenge in the retreat, we carry our habitual strategies from life to try to deal with them. And so we get to see our senses of self coming into how we engage in the practice. This isn't a mistake. It's actually helpful. You know, it's not like we bring a different, a different set of conditions in here than we have out there. We really get to see our conditioning in here. So sometimes a sense of self is kind of vague. seems like hard to really point to and identify. And Sometimes it's really, really clear. That may be about the best time to be really begin to look at what is it that I'm calling self? Certain kinds of experiences tend to... Um, Uh, Certain kinds of habitual um, patterns tend to kind of really evoke a strong identity. You know, self-righteousness, one of them. I'm right. There can be strong identities around certain emotions. Strong identities around particular habitual patterns. Many of these are the ones we suffer over. And this points to, uh, I think I mentioned this the other day, that the teaching of dependent origination, which describes how suffering comes to be, also describes how these senses of self come to be. So it's the same process. It's the same process. So when there is this, this um, um, churning of identity, there's also this clinging to something, holding on to something, And so sometimes when the sense of self feels really clear, it's a good time to look at it. So I'm going to tell a story from my own practice around this. It's a particularly uh, strong identity I had around being unworthy. Self-hatred was one of the main manifestations of this. And uh, actually, it, it took a while before I really saw it. I did not not grow up feeling like I hated myself really. I I grew up feeling very competent and very in control and in charge and knew what I wanted to do. And when I started meditating, I began hearing and, and recognizing these voices in my head, you know, you're a failure. You're no good. You don't do that right. You're a terrible yogi. And there were also ones in there, you're the best yogi in the room. You're really good at this. Ryan talked the other night about these kind of contrasting identities that we, we have. And, and I saw that in spades, you know, and really began to, to recognize that so much of my um, patterns of trying to succeed, of, of striving to succeed, had been kind of rooted in that sense of being a failure. And so when I began to see that, it was really hard to feel that. Self-hatred is a very painful feeling. It feels just like you're being annihilated. And so it was a long process to explore this, to watch it, to have the courage to open to it as an arising. To know when I couldn't know it as an arising, when the conditions were not, uh, when my mindfulness wasn't strong enough to really meet it and was going to get sucked into it. Could just, you know. So there's a lot of work around this, a lot of practice. A lot of work one particular three-month course you know I look back on it and it's kind of like it was my self-hatred retreat I really got to see this pattern over and over and over again I would have a few days in the middle there where it would be like not there so much and this points to one of the really useful tools around a pervasive sense of self notice when it's not there and so this was something I did notice there were days oh self-hatred is not here That begins to kind of poke holes in the belief in the identity. In the, the really, the solidification around this. I am unworthy. I am a failure. It pokes holes in that, in that um, solidity of that. Because we see it's not always there. Really powerful tool for those pervasive identities. And sometimes I could be with the pattern as it arose, and sometimes I would get kind of you know, pulled under and I just kept, kept practicing, kept practicing with it. One evening, um, after a Dharma talk, um, Joseph had given a, a teaching in the, in the hall around, uh, pervasive patterns and he used, he, he gave a teaching, which I will share with you. It was very helpful for me that evening, um, where he said, if there's something that's happening, that keeps coming up over and over again. It's really helpful to recognize when it arises, the moment it arises. So know that as contact. The arising of that is contact. And then notice the feeling tone of that arising. And so as I left the hall that evening, I remember I was going out the hall at the upper walking room at IMS, walking up the stairs, and the feeling of self-hatred just descended. And there was this like, oh... And a feeling of like heaviness and, and, and then I was like caught this as like, no, I'm just going to practice with this. And I went back to my room and I used that, that teaching that he had offered. And so as I was sitting there, I was noticing this kind of fluctuation around the sense of self-hatred. It would not be there and it would come in, into being. And I would say, contact unpleasant. I would note it, just contact unpleasant and then it might kind of weaken and then it would get stronger contact unpleasant and i kept just doing that for a long time that evening Had a lot of real dedication to being with it i wasn't afraid of it that was just a lot of work there you know a lot of working through the fear of of the feeling a lot of dealing with some of the history of how it came to be you know a lot of work preceded this evening I mean, it was probably couple years of work in working with this pattern. But this particular evening, I just had a lot of confidence in the path and in the power of the mindfulness. And at some point in seeing that contact, the mind understood in that moment, this is just a thought. You're no good. It is simply a thought The sense of self was kind of picking that thought up. What the sense of self was, was picking that thought up and doing a believing process with it. Oh, I'm no good. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I really believe that. Oh, 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 I believe that. I could see it in that moment of its arising. It's just a thought. And in that moment, the whole thing just, like, fell apart. and I had a moment in that moment where I thought, oh, never again will I experience that self-hatred. And in the next moment, there was wisdom. I said, no, these are the conditions right now. There's the conditions right now to see this. And then that, there was a kind of, what, what was in so interesting in that moment, it was like there was a shift from self-hatred to bliss in just a split second. And then in seeing that, oh no, this is just the conditions now, that bliss shifted to just equanimity. In a moment, in a moment, in a moment. That moment was extremely powerful. I, it, the, the, the pattern, I would say, th- it still exists. But what seems to be gone is the belief in the thoughts. The thoughts come, but there's not the belief. So it's like, oh yeah, there's that thought, your failure. Yeah, there's that thought. Very occasionally I find, in, per- in particular, it seems to be in deeper states of meditation, sometimes the mind picks it up a little bit. Oh, there it is again. So I have a lot of respect for this pattern. It's like, it's like a big tree got uprooted that night. But they're still the filaments, you know? So I really respect that pattern. Like, see those thoughts. See them. So we can study our senses of self. We can get curious about them. Very powerful understanding. That was a powerful that I described, it was a powerful insight into an identity that not only like shifted that identity, I mean it changed my life, that moment. It's one of the, I don't know, dozen or so moments of really clear insight in my practice that I can say, yeah, that that split second, that changed my life. Few of those in my practice that moment really shifted my life but it also like gave me a deeper level of understanding about how the sense of self works. So so it was an, it was an understanding into that teaching of not-self. So... I have to skip about half the page here. (laughs) It's time to stop. But I do want to say that I find it really important in exploring senses of self. Much as we've been saying around suffering, you know, opening to the entirety of our human experience, honoring experience, respecting our experience, respecting the suffering that arises, opening to it, witnessing it, being with it, holding it with allowing and love. Same thing goes with honoring our identities, honoring our senses of self. They, they have their function and often... They have a very strong... And sometimes we can just like, you know, bow to those identities. It's like, yeah, thank you for for doing this, like keeping me alive until this point. Because some of our habits and patterns were strategies for how to get through our upbringing. And so it's like, yeah, I see you. And thank you for getting me here. And let's see, you know, can we... Relate to things in a different way. So honoring our identities, being aware of them, opening to them, is a form of honoring. It's a form of respect. That very word, respect, means to look again and again. To look again. Respect what's there. And the the honoring of these identities begins to help us to understand. The other day I spoke to those threads that come into, both into suffering and into identities, the threads of, you know, the deep wish to be happy, healthy, safe, at ease. And those threads of truth, impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable not only is our suffering a kind of a knotting up of those threads but so can our identities be and so the the mindfulness and the wisdom begin to help us to understand and 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 point it points back to seeing our identities points back to love compassion and truth When we see through the tangle, the tangle of views, there's love and wisdom to be seen, to be experienced. Let's sit for a a moment. So there's chanting at 9 o'clock again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.